Welcome to the Center for a New American Securities NATSEC Women podcast series. Last year, we started a project on getting new audiences to think and talk about issues of gender, inclusivity, and national security. Schedule an event with gender in the title, and you can guarantee it is 95% women talking to other women in the audience about women's issues. So we tried other ways. Some audiences were receptive, some weren't. Some were frustrated we were making a big deal out of a topic they thought was closed. Asked and answered, move on. But among the women we know, it didn't feel nearly as clear cut. So we're bringing you right to the source one-on-one candid conversations with women in national security about their careers, their experience, their advice, and their lessons. Here's their stories. I'm Julie Smith, the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and I'm here with Nicole Pilkus, who's a senior leader from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you very much. Nicole, why don't we start today with this Women in National Security podcast uh, with you just telling us a little bit about your background. Well, I didn't actually start out in national security. I studied political science and French in undergrad and went into jobs in international business and information technology. It wasn't until I earned my first master's degree in public administration that I entered federal service. I did that through the Presidential Management Intern Program. Oh, terrific. Yeah, I know that program. That's great. I joined the Department of State's Bureau of Diplomatic Security in 2000, and most of my tenure there was spent as an all-source analyst, covering terrorism, political violence, and criminal threats to U.S. interests in Europe and the Middle East. Great. Yeah. No, keep going. Sorry. I know you've done so many things. You've you've had so many achievements, but please tell us more. I'm interested. Well, I decided uh, in 2005 that I really needed a change. I only half joked when I said that I wanted a job where no one died if I didn't read my email. (laughs) Um, And I felt a little guilty leaving, but really the pressure of balancing a time-sensitive counterterrorism job and being the wife at the time of an active-duty Air Force officer and a mother to a young daughter drove me to seek out a new position. And that's when I joined uh, NGA, or the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. I was first introduced to NGA while working in the Olympic Intelligence Center for the Salt Lake City Games in 2002. Oh, really? Yes. It was a great experience. I was very impressed with NGA's technology and mission and decided to apply there. So I've been there for, it'll be 12 years next month. All right. Well, congrats. Amazing, amazing uh, CV that you laid out there for us. When you're talking about women in national security, sometimes you encounter this theory that if only there were more women in senior roles in the national security field, uh, the United States would, in fact, have some sort of different national security policy or a different foreign policy. Um, Some believe that we'd have a foreign policy that's maybe less in interventionist or a greater emphasis on diplomacy. How do you, when, when you hear that, um, how do you respond to it? Are you kind of nodding your head or do you take a different perspective on that? I think it's a little stereotypical to say that women are pacifists and <laughs> men are the aggressors. Right, right. Um, however, I do personally fall on the more isolationist side of the scale. Uh-huh. That said, I don't think it's unique to foreign policy. I think in any problem-solving situation, the more diverse your pool of decision-makers and influencers, the better your policy decision will be. So considering that including different perspectives will almost always produce a better result, 
Right now, our national security apparatus is predominantly male, dare I say white male. Yeah, indeed, indeed, yeah, yeah. So that said, I think that while our foreign policy may not necessarily be more peaceful, I think having more diverse voices at the table would result in a better foreign policy, maybe something more attuned to how others perceive us or just a more holistic policy. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I think that's a lot of where we women end up when they're asked this question. We've asked this question a couple times on the podcast, and we've had some really interesting responses. But I think most women would argue that diversity brings a more diverse array of policy responses and perspectives to the table. So another thing that women sometimes encounter, I know I've encountered this a couple of times, is this question of how do you deal with the fact or what is it like to be a woman working in the national security field or on military issues or defense issues? And so when young women or maybe even members of your own family, when you go to visit friends in a faraway place and you get a question like that, how do you how do you answer that? Uh, I've heard this question before. I heard it posed to a female panel member last month at, a, at an event. So it is a very common question. I think in many ways, being a woman in national security is no different than being a man in national security. You have a no-fail mission. We operate mostly in the shadows. Our successes are always secret and our failures are hugely public. So in those ways, I think it's no different. Uh, That said, I think that women are posed questions that men never get. Mm -hmm. I think there are certain societal pressures and expectations. So for instance, uh, I I think those of us with children are asked quite often when you travel, usually overseas in my history, who's watching your child or who's watching your children? Men are never asked that question. (laughs) So as a female in national security, where you have certain requirements of your job, um, there's an expectation that your child or children don't have another parent equally capable of caring for them. Exactly. And the other thing is we get even from other mothers, oh, I could never leave my children for days at a time or weeks at a time, or in the case of military females, you know, months at a time. Right, yeah. Um, So I think those societal and cultural guilt trips uh, are things that men aren't necessarily exposed to. And more generally, when a man spends long hours at his job or travels for business, there's the assumption he's doing it to take care of his family. I think when women travel for business or spend long hours at the office, the expectation is the opposite, that we're somehow neglecting our families, even though we're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. No, I've I've encountered that so many times on trips abroad, the being peppered with questions and you look at your male colleagues and you don't necessarily see the same on their side. It's fascinating, actually. And I do know that for for women in uniform, there are unique challenges that civilian women don't have, right? They have the challenges with protective clothing that doesn't quite fit right and things like that, that it's a whole different level of safety and security concerns for them and their job. Um, but culturally, I think we all deal with the same biases. Yeah, yeah. Now, Nicole, you mentioned um, you've been in this business for a while. You've had a really uh, diverse and impressive set of experiences in the field of national security. If you were to now encounter your younger self uh, <laughs> when you were first getting your start in the field of national security, 
what kind of advice would you give your younger self or or tips along the way? How, how would you look at it differently now with so much experience under your belt? I think there's a couple things. Um, as much as I hate to say it, I think I would advise my younger self to be better prepared to deal with discriminatory comments. I'm very direct. I'm very outspoken, <laughs> uh, extroverted. I didn't anticipate being at a loss for words sometimes <laughs> when, when confronted with certain comments. Um, and I know there's been a lot in the news recently about overt sexual misconduct and sexual assault, but there's a lot of other much more subtle gender-based and age-based biases. Um, if I could share a story about yeah, 10 yeah. years ago, I was applying for and was interviewed for a GS-15 position. Uh, it would have been a promotion for me at the time. And in my feedback session, the senior executive manager, who was the hiring authority, simply told me that I was the most qualified, but I was just too young. Oh, my. Yeah. And I was 37. So I had been in the workforce for quite a while. And a few months later, I successfully applied for another GS-15 position and was promoted and ironically was given much more responsibility and authority and autonomy in the job I got as opposed to the one I was told I was too young for. Uh, but that's just an anecdote, one example of things that, uh, that we face that I wasn't really prepared for. Um, and I would advise my younger self to take a class, I think, on giving uncomfortable feedback. Because although I've always said when it comes to my own behavior, I would always rather do the right thing and sleep well at night than get some promotion or benefit or bonus. Um, but I think there's also the challenge of walking past behavior that you don't necessarily agree with. And how do you confront that behavior in others? And I have certainly lost much more sleep over the years about how to address others' behavior or regretting not addressing others' behavior as opposed to my own. And on a more positive note, I would go back and tell myself not to second guess my decisions so much. So now looking back, at the 20 something Nicole, um, <laughs> that, that things are sometimes frustrating and challenging, uh, in the national security arena for sure. And certainly in any federal government job, there's the bureaucratic red tape that is, oh, is eminently be, frustrating, Yes, yes. but there's a huge amount of personal satisfaction that comes with this job. Um, any job where you're actually protecting other people and trying to do right by the country is, is immensely satisfying. And then I look back and and see this strong, confident woman coming behind me and my daughter who just turned 18 and know that I made the right choices and I did the right thing and I set the right type of an example for her. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to end. It's always very rewarding to look and see those traits coming forward in your own kids and understanding you know, the importance of the values that you've placed in them and, and see them develop into full adults. And yeah, I, I can only imagine my kids right now are pretty far away from that phase of life, but I look forward to seeing them as they make that transition. It's, it makes it makes all the hours at the office and the trips and all that worth it Yeah, when yeah. they're proud of what you do for a living. That's right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so what do you think men could do? We have this conversation oftentimes with women and among women, but we want to include men uh, in this topic of women in national security. 
What do you think men could do to make the Department of Defense generally more hospitable to women? Or how how should the Department of Defense adapt um, to attract, retain, and promote more qualified women? Do you have views on that, having had some very good exposure over the years? I do. Um I think one of the biggest challenges for women is what I will call assignment bias. And I'll share a personal anecdote about this, but there's an assumption that a man's job or a man's promotion or a man's assignment trumps that of a woman's, particularly with a married couple. So the requirement to relocate in the military side of of DOD and the national security apparatus and the expectation that you will eventually relocate or occasionally relocate as a civilian Um, in order to climb through the ranks, has a disproportionately negative effect on women. Hmm. And I think it's because far fewer male partners are willing to relocate in order for their female partner to progress than the other way around. It's almost expected that a woman will quit her job and move with a male partner. But the inverse is not not true. And when I married my now ex-husband... Um, he was active duty Air Force, and I left a very promising career in the private sector. I was living in Montreal, and I left all that and moved to England, uh, where he was stationed with the Air Force. And the job I had got there paid only half of what I had been earning. Wow. I did that for two and a half years, at which point he got stationed back in the U.S. Of here course. In yeah. <laughs> I left my job again, came here, um, no regrets. But a few years later, I was working at diplomatic security. He was still an active duty Air Force officer. He was offered an assignment to Moscow, which was his dream job. And I was willing to once again leave my job and follow him. But I wanted to find employment at the embassy, which many spouses do. Sure. I was working as an intelligence analyst at the time. I was in a training course. And the person in charge of attache assignments came to speak to us. And I shared with him my predicament. I said, my husband's been offered this job. I would love to go and we would love to do this. Is there a policy against spouses working in the same office at the embassy? was my simple question. And this man was an Air Force colonel. And his reply was, quote, working full time will negatively affect your ability to fulfill your social obligations. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That was his answer. Um, They didn't want me to work. They wanted me to host parties. And this was not 1950. This was not 1960. It's not Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. This was the early 2000s. And that colonel was speaking to me at an Intel training class. He was well aware of my qualifications. Um, But in his eyes, my value was as a party hostess for an Air Force major. Right. Of course. Wow. 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 That's telling. And so... My now ex-husband turned down that assignment and separated from active duty Wow! and became a reserve officer and now has a very successful career as a civilian in the national security arena as well. Yeah, yeah. But that is the predominant, the predominant thought that, well, you're not important. You're just here to support mm-hmm. the man. Mm-hmm. And the system really is set up for a leader and a follower, whichever yeah. gender the leader sure, is. Sure, sure, yeah. It has no capacity or almost no capacity to deal with equally educated professional partners who both want to have a fulfilling career. 
And this just doesn't reflect today's reality because you have dual income families and you see that at the State Department, in the U.S. military. Increasingly, you have a spouse that doesn't want to just hang out and host parties somewhere. And my ex-husband and I continue to support each other. We get along very well. And as we raised our daughter, we took turns taking over when one of us had to travel. I went back to grad school full time and had no flexibility in my schedule. And, you know, we've supported each other, but the system doesn't really support that model. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and speaking of the system, I think there are things they could do to help both men and women. And I think if both genders took advantage of these equally, it would also help. But just as cliche as it sounds, work-life balance programs. Yeah. I think that where they are offered, it's not always encouraged that you take advantage of them. Um, Where they're offered... Things like paternity leave, it's often looked down upon if a man takes advantage of the paternity leave. Mm-hmm. I don't think that late nights should be worn as a badge of honor. Agreed, agreed. It's not, studies have shown, it's not good for our health, it's mm-hmm. not good for our mental health, it's not good for our physical health. And productivity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Healthy, balanced employees are much more productive. Um, I know extremely talented GS-15s who do not want to apply for senior positions because they don't want to be part of that work, work, work culture. I've heard it too, yeah. So women still have a disproportionate amount of responsibility at home, mm-hmm. um, doctor's appointments, things like that. There's there's certainly motion toward parity, but we're not there yet. And I think flexible work schedules and teleworking and on-site, fit, on-site fitness facilities are all good things, mm-hmm. uh, but not if you don't take advantage of them, and certainly not if you dissuade your employees from sure. taking advantage of them. Sure. Well, just uh, one last question. You've been very generous with your time. Um, women are sometimes stereotyped when they find themselves as the only woman in the room, a room full of men. Um, and sometimes it's almost as if people assume that woman sitting there is perhaps not as well versed on the particular subject matter until you actually can prove that you are. Um, but there are cases where once you establish the credibility, sometimes it's easier to be remembered or to stand out because you happen to be the only woman. And so with that badge of, okay, I'm a subject matter expert, I know what I'm talking about, sometimes it can serve to, you know, play to your advantage, I guess I would say. So, I I mean, do you think that, do you see that, first of all? Do you think that's helpful, uh, harmful? What has been kind of your experience in that regard? I think at conferences and large gatherings for national security-related topics, there is still an overwhelming majority of men, but rarely are you the only female at the table anymore. Mm -hmm. I think my agency has hovered around 30% women Uh for the past several years. Some agencies, of course, have near parity, but not many, certainly not our uniformed services. I think they hover closer around 15 or 20% of the active duty force. But early in my career, I did have occasions where I was the only female in the room. And I remember starting at Diplomatic Security, working for Joan Lewis, who was the executive director, who was a very strong, intelligent, talented woman. And she sent me to represent her at a meeting. And I was 
probably 15 years below the average age of all the other participants. I was a GS9. Wow. I was the only female. And most of the older men in the room were also federal agents, law enforcement agents, diplomatic security agents. And we were meeting about an OIG or inspector general related issue. And one of them started talking about something that he wanted to do that was in the report as something that was forbidden. And I spoke up, which he didn't like very much. And I believe his exact question to me was, who the hell are you? Oh, my. And I introduced myself and followed it with, apparently, I'm the only one who prepared for this meeting. (laughs) Well done. Yeah. Wow. That's that's a good, I wouldn't have thought of that on the fly. It was a great comeback. I, it was a risk. Um, but from that day forward, that man and I had a fabulous working relationship. And I think it was a matter of standing up to a bully and letting them know that you weren't going to let them run roughshod over you. Yeah, sure. And he and I had a great relationship on many issues and worked collaboratively for several years after that. But I was worried leaving that meeting what the blowback was going to be for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. And and more recently, I had a similar approach. There was a, a male who outranked me and had been acting unprofessionally and tried to do the whole macho routine. And I was the only female in that particular leadership team. And I stood up to him and it seems to have worked. Um, we haven't had any run-ins since. But I think sometimes you have to do that. And you are remembered. Um But women are taught to smile more and be more accommodating and be nice. And in, especially in situations like that, I think you just have to stand up for yourself. And, and like I said, you're remembered certainly, but I think you also gain the respect of people for being able to speak your mind and be an expert on a subject and, and not be, not be told to sit down and and be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for coming to CNIS and recording this podcast with us. We really appreciated getting your unique perspectives. And thanks for all you do to keep us safe and all your commitment to public service and uh, wishing you all the best uh, in the new year in 2018. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for helping to advertise what we do in national security. 